welcome back to the Forster's Modern Law podcast. I'm Miri Stickland and I'm really delighted to be joined today by the two leading authorities on residential leasehold reform. We have Damien Greenish, who's a senior consultant at Forster's, and Tony Radovsky, who is a barrister at Falcon Chambers. Damien and Tony are the co-authors of the Bible for anyone involved in leasehold extension and collective enfranchisement work. Hague on Leasehold Enfranchisement, and the seventh edition of that book was published in December last year. So a very warm welcome to you both. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you very much. It's lovely to see you, <laughs> or talk to you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's very nice to, to, um, to have you both here today. So, Tony, can I start off by asking you to give us just a short history of enfranchisement rights and sort of how we've got to where we are today? Uh, yes, certainly. The Leasehold Reform Act 1967 was passed to assist residential leaseholders whose Victorian leases were due to expire shortly. Um, it only applied to people occupying a house rather than a flat and only where the house had a low rateable value and was held on a long lease at a low rent that the tenant was given the right to buy the freehold or obtain a 50-year extension. The price of the freehold and the rent under an extended lease were based on the value of the land and not the building. Enfranchisement proved to be very popular and in later years was extended to higher value houses and leases not at a low rent. The residence criteria were relaxed and later abolished in most cases although the price payable for higher value houses became more favourable to the landlord. It included paying for the building and marriage value. Uh, in 1993, the Leasehold Reform Housing and Urban Development Act granted new rights to lessees of flats. There was a right to collective enfranchisement of a block of flats, i.e. buying the freehold, and an individual right to a new lease of an additional 90 years. Originally, residents and low rent tests applied, but these were also abolished in 2002. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> Damien, did you have anything that you wanted to add to that? Well, just a little bit. I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean that was a really uh, good summary of the, of the legislation, but there's a little bit of background to that, which I think is interesting. It's a very political subject, leasehold reform, it always has been. Uh, and it's noticeable that uh, legislation and changes in the legislation have generally followed uh, a pattern of uh, political involvement uh, and uh, people saying how unfair the leasehold system is and we need to do something about it. Uh, and uh, that's certainly true now, and we'll be coming on to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, I think that if you look at the history, people talk about the leasehold system being a sort of relic of the feudal system. It's got absolutely nothing to do with the feudal system whatsoever, uh, although it's uh, quite, always quite a useful thing to, uh, if you want to make a political statement, it sounds good, doesn't it, that um, it's part of a feudal system. But actually it's not. It's purely a contractual arrangement. But, uh, if you look at the history of leasehold, originally houses, particularly building leases, uh, which gave rise to the 67 Act, and then post-war, um, with the rise of flats, uh, people wanting smaller accommodation, houses being converted into flats. The only effective way of selling a, a house is uh, through leasehold. 
So as the, you saw an increasing number of flats uh, going leasehold uh, and controversial issues relating to the management of those flats. Uh, so you saw the extension of leasehold reform um, and we see it again today. Thanks, Damien. Can we follow on from that by touching on what are the fundamentals of the valuation process? Yeah, this is always a difficult one, for, isn't it, for, for lawyers um, purporting to talk about valuation, but I'm going to have a crack at it and I'm sure Tony will chip in and where I go wrong. If I keep it to really <laughs> basics, uh, if you're a leaseholder and uh, you want to enfranchise, let, let, let's keep it simple and say you just want to buy your freehold. So what is it actually that you're buying? And what is it that the freeholder is selling to you? Well, the crucial aspects of it is, is that you start by looking at what's, what's the freeholder got to sell? Well, he's got two things to sell, hasn't he? The property is subject to a lease. He's, it's subject to your lease. Uh, and that's got two aspects to it. It's got a rent, which uh, is payable throughout the term, a ground rent. And it's got a reversion, i.e. that at the end of the lease, the landlord gets the property back. And those are his two pieces of value the rent during the term, and the fact that he gets the property back at the end of the lease. And if you buy him out as the leaseholder from those two, um, he needs to be compensated for that. And that's called a term and reversion valuation. So basically what you do is you capitalize the rent over the term. Um, if you're not gonna get the rent over the term, what capital sum are you gonna be paid today to compensate you for the loss of that rent? Uh, and you're going to be compensated for the reversion, the loss of your reversion. And the way you do that is to uh, take the current freehold vacant possession value uh, and then defer it uh, or discount it over the term because you're not going to get that freehold vacant possession value until the lease expires. And uh, uh, a deferment rate has been the subject. The rate that you apply to that um, has been the subject of much controversy over the years. So that's, that's, um, that's the basics of the valuation. There's one other element though, which is controversial and that's called marriage value. So what is marriage value? Always a difficult concept to explain. The Law Commission in their reports did it uh, in a way by comparing a pair of vases. They said, well, look, the position is that if you've got a, if you've got a pair of vases, um, each of them has a value on its own, but um, they have a greater value if you have both vases because they were designed as a pair. Uh, the person who owns one vase will pay more uh, for the second vase than somebody who doesn't have the first vase because he can release the marriage value uh, by, uh, by owning both of them. And it's broadly, it's sort of broadly the same um, with uh, freeholds and leaseholds and combining them. The value of, uh, of a lease, uh, when added to the value of the freehold subject to the lease, comes to less than the freehold vacant possession value. And the difference is marriage value. Um, and uh, that uh, marriage value historically has been divided broadly equally between the freeholder and the leaseholder. Each of them uh, gets, gets a shot at it. And that's proved to be slightly controversial. Um, again, it's suggested that marriage value is somehow a construct of leasehold reform. It's not. It, it, it exists as a valuation concept and existed long before leasehold reform. Uh, but um, as we shall see, it, it's a controversial part of the uh, of the valuation. Just uh, chip in there if I may and, and just say that when the Leasehold Reform Act of 1967 was originally passed, lessees of houses who qualified and still can qualify under the, uh, the original strict criteria pay a price that doesn't include marriage value 
but if you live in a higher value house or in a flat, uh, then you do pay marriage value if you have a lease which has less than 80 years unexpired. And that can add quite a lot of money to the price that you have to pay for the freehold for an extended lease, uh, particularly if you live in a, in a valuable property in central London, and particularly if your lease is getting really rather short, say 30 or 40 years unexpired, it can be a, a large chunk of money in those circumstances. There are quite a lot of sort of controversial issues involved in this area then. So I'd really like to ask you both about your views on the need for modernisation. Tony, can I start with you and ask you what the main issues are from your perspective with the law as it stands? I guess from both sides of the coin, so from a landlord's perspective and, and the tenants. Yes, well, uh, the Law Commission was asked recently in the last couple of years to look in to the whole law of enfranchisement to make it easier and cheaper for lessees. Uh, a widespread view had formed that the process was too complicated, drawn out and expensive. Uh, my own opinion for what it's worth is that there are a number of genuine difficulties with the present regime, but that these could be sorted out by making some amendments. Uh, the Law Commission take a different approach and propose scrapping the existing acts completely and starting from scratch. Uh, to take two of the current difficulties by way of example, first, the definitions of house and flat are surprisingly relatively complicated um, and have generated a lot of litigation. For instance, where buildings which may be houses are in mixed use, or flats are in the course of construction. The Law Commission uh, proposed replacing both the existing definitions with a completely new one, uh, a residential unit, which they haven't defined as yet. Um, and that itself is likely to cause litigation in my view. So we may be uh, about to, uh, to embark on, on a fresh run of, of cases going to appeal. Uh, secondly, uh, the marriage value, which we've already mentioned, which is payable by many lessees, depends on valuing the tenant's existing lease, but disregarding the right to enfranchise. Uh, that is very difficult to do because almost all the market evidence is of sales of leases with enfranchisement rights. The proposal favoured by the government is to abolish the right to receive marriage value altogether, which is controversial and would re represent a major shift of funds away from landlords. Damien, is there anything that you wanted to add to that? Well, I think um, uh, this idea that you can abolish marriage value, I mean, the, the, uh, which Tony talks about, and, and the government have indeed said that they're going to abolish marriage value, uh, but that, again, is a misnomer. You, you, you can't abolish marriage value. It exists as a valuation concept and has existed long before uh, leasehold reform. Uh, what, in effect, you're doing, uh, what the government is proposing to do, is to uh, transfer uh, any marriage value that would otherwise belong to the uh, landlord uh, to the leaseholder. So the leaseholder effectively gets 100% of the marriage value. Well, fair enough. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a political judgment and a political decision uh, that, the, uh, that the government uh, has taken. 
So we've touched on the transfer of marriage value and the government made the announcement that there were going to be new leasehold reforms coming forward. That, that announcement was made back in January following extensive consultations by the Law Commission. So I guess that leads us on to what the main proposed changes are and what you anticipate the impact's going to be. Damien, do you want to start us off by talking about the changes to the valuation process? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the government made an announcement in January, which followed a paper produced by uh, the Law Commission uh, last year. I can't remember exactly when it was last year, but in which the Law Commission put forward various options in order to reduce the price that is payable on enfranchisement. Um, and this was part of the, uh, it was in response to the government's uh, terms of reference saying that they uh, had made a decision that they wanted to make uh, enfranchisement uh, quicker, simpler and cheaper. So this was the cheaper part of it uh, to reduce the enfranchisement price. And it, you mentioned the proposed uh, transfer of 100% of marriage value to, to the leaseholder. And the other area of great controversy going back over recent years has been ground rents and uh, what came to be known as the great ground rent scandal. And in very short form, what happened there was that builders and developers, when uh, constructing uh, new uh, homes, both houses and flats, uh, had hit upon a wheeze by, uh, if you sold them leasehold subject to a ground rent, you could effectively sell them twice uh, because you would sell the house to the first time buyer. Uh, then when you sold all the houses uh, and you had a, a leasehold estate uh, subject to ground rents, uh, you could sell those uh, ground rents to a ground rent investor. And uh, a ground rent investor liked that sort of investment because it was pretty secure, guaranteed income. And with very low interest rates, it gave them a pretty good rate of return. Uh, but the trouble then was that builders and developers got greedy. They began to think, well, this is a very good wheeze. Not only we get ground rents, but we can have dynamic ground rents, ground rents which increase in value over a period of time. And some of them put forward what one might describe as outrageous ground rents, really, in, uh, sort of doubling every 10 years, which, if you work them out over, say, a 125-year uh, lease term, uh, rise to astronomical figures uh, eventually. And these, of course, proved to be even more attractive to ground rent investors. And, of course, when you, when you uh, go back to what I said about the valuation, a part of the valuation, uh, if you want to then enfranchise that property, is capitalising the ground rent. So in order to be able to acquire your freehold, I mean, acquired a 125-year lease and thinking that actually uh, it's really not going to cost me very much to buy the freehold because there can't be much value with a 125-year reversion. Buyers were uh, surprised to find that actually the price of buying their freehold was very significant because um, uh, the uh, capitalization of the ground rent, um, a dynamic ground rent, uh, produced a very high figure. So uh, that's a rather long-winded introduction to explain why the second of the government's uh, announcements suggests that they will introduce legislation to limit the level of ground rent that can be capitalised. And if ground rent is considered to be uh, onerous, and by onerous they talk about a rent being not more than 0.1% of the freehold vacant possession value of the property, uh, then it will be disregarded for, for uh, valuation purposes. Now, that, that obviously will have quite an impact, particularly on the ground rent investors who have bought these ground rents and um, suddenly find that the value of these ground rents will no doubt significantly diminish. Uh, so uh, th yeah, there will be an effect there. 
I mean, the other areas they talked about, uh, which is interesting, is that uh, development value, they're talking about uh, the possibility that uh, uh, on an enfranchisement claim, the leaseholder uh, will be able to require uh, the uh, landlord to retain any development value. Very nice idea in principle. Uh, there's not a great deal of detail of that, to say the least. And if, uh, if you look at the uh, options paper and the previous consultation paper from the Claw Commission, uh, there is really very little detail there as to quite how that will work. Uh, but it's part of making it cheaper, is that if there is development value in a building, uh, the leaseholder wouldn't necessarily have to buy it. To make it easier, they talk about prescribing rates, prescribing capitalization rates and deferment rates, albeit at a market value, which is what the announcement said. So it'll be interesting to see what currently market values of deferment rates and capitalization rates are. Certainly quite a body of opinion that suggests they're going to be quite a bit lower than they are at the moment. And then by making it simpler, uh, you can uh, introduce a, a calculator so that you won't have to go to very expensive lawyers and valuers in order to enfranchise. Uh, you will plug a figure into a calculator and it'll tell you what the enfranchisement price is. So those are the outline of the changes that have been announced to date. Tony, is there anything you want to add to that? Well, um, if I could move on to the other recommendations of the Law Commission, other than valuation matters, um, they produced a very big report with a very large number of recommendations. Uh, and I, I'll just pick out a few, if I may, which, uh, which spring to mind. There's only one which uh, formed part of the government's announcement in January accepting the Law Commission's um, recommendation. The others were, were not commented on by the government as yet. Uh, the one that the government have said they're going to follow is to allow the lessees of both houses and flats to obtain a 990-year lease extension. At the moment, as I've already mentioned, uh, the lessee of a house um, who satisfies the original criteria under the 1967 Act can get a 50-year extension and the lessee of a flat can get a 90-year extension. That is not a, not an enormously long time in, in the life of a, of a building and so the, the proposal uh, which has found favour is to allow people to get a 990-year lease extension. The other headline reforms proposed are, first of all, moving all disputes away from the courts and into the first-tier tribunal, uh, where there is generally a no-costs regime, doing away with strict procedural time limits regarding notices, which cause many people to fall into a trap if they don't serve a notice in time or apply to a court or tribunal in time. They proposed abolishing the present requirement to own the lease for two years before claiming the freehold of a house or a new lease of a flat. Uh, in the case of collective enfranchisement, uh, the Commission has proposed increasing the proportion of non-residential space in a building which can be enfranchised from 25% to 50%. Uh, they have uh, recommended allowing an estate of blocks of flats to be subject to a single collective claim. At the moment, only individual buildings can enfranchise, which can be very inconvenient where there is a large estate. 
Uh, they've also proposed allowing a lessee to buy out the ground rent, which Damien has just mentioned, without having to extend the lease, so paying a price to the freeholder uh, in return for not having to pay rent anymore. Uh, those are the, the, the headlines which uh, come to mind. Tony, you've already mentioned that you envisage this going to be an increased amount of litigation um, around the definition of residential units. But what other difficulties do you envisage there are going to be with the implementation of the government's proposals? Or, or is it just too early to, to say? It is too early to say because we don't know yet uh, what the full government response to the Law Commission will be. They've only put out a fairly sketchy response in January and we will expect in due course a long response and uh, details of what legislation they're going to propose. At the moment, they've said that they're going to bring in a bill to prevent new properties being let at ground rents, but we haven't seen that bill yet. The, the abolition of the payment of marriage value is controversial. As I've said, it could lead to some landlords losing a very large amount of money, and it is possible that uh, such landlords could challenge that abolition on the grounds that it interferes with their human rights. The, the legislation is, is likely to be very long if the law commission, all the law commission's recommendations are, are, are to be put into a bill. Uh, one can imagine that it's going to be a very long, complicated bill and uh, could be the subject of, of detailed debate and amendment when it goes through Parliament. So um, I, I think that the whole process is likely to take a long time. But as yet, we don't have a, a timetable. Damien, is there anything else that you want to add to that? Well, there's a couple of points I'll come back on, I think. Tony mentioned in terms of the, uh, the, the, the change of, for collective enfranchisement, increasing the commercial floor space uh, from 25% to 50%, what we might call the 50%, what's now become the 50% rule, is one of the more interesting uh, recommendations made by the Law Commission, principally because I think it, it is the only case where the uh, original in the original consultation the uh, law commission proposed uh, that uh, it should remain at 25% uh, that uh, they uh, subsequently in the consultation uh, had a, uh, a majority of consultees who agreed with that and yet in their final report to government uh, they had changed their minds and decided it ought to go up to 50% now that's likely to cause some Difficulties, I think, for the government if they're, if they're minded to accept that recommendation, because uh, the consultation there, I think, is open to doubt as to whether it was a proper consultation uh, of that. So uh, that, that's an area of, of uh, a potential problem, I think. I mean, Tony mentioned human rights. There's a very good, um, you know, for anyone who's interested, there's a very good opinion which was published by the Law Commission by uh, Catherine uh, Callahan QC, um, who's a human rights expert. So they, the Law Commission got advice on human rights, and no proposals at the moment are put forward where a leading council has said uh, that they would be definitely incompatible with human rights. Having said that, I think the government's suggestion of the abolishing, uh, abolishing marriage value, or scheme one, as it is in the option paper, the view is that it's uh, her view is that it's marginally, I think is the word she uses, 
marginally more likely than not that it would be compliant. Well, I think the use of the word marginally there would give uh, plenty of scope for landlords to say, well, I think I'll have a crack at marginally, given the amount of money I'm likely to be losing. It's quite difficult to take a, a, anything other than a very broad view of human rights at the moment, uh, because uh, as, again, the opinion makes clear, you have to look at it in the round. So it's, it's, it's all very well just looking at one particular proposal and saying, oh, well, that may or may not uh, be uh, compliant. Uh, but the, um, the overall effect of the proposals, if you combine, say, the 50% rule with the loss of marriage value, that the combination of those events could provide a more robust case for a challenge. We'll have to see. I mean, there's, there's um, so much that we don't know. One of the um, points I'd like to make is this, that some law commission reports gather dust for many years. Um, there's a good example of that. Uh, in 2011, so 10 years ago, the law commission published a report on reforming uh, the law on easements and covenants, another area of property. They published a very good report with a draft bill attached to it. It proposed various beneficial changes, not politically controversial. Nothing has been done to bring it into law in those 10 years. These reforms are not accompanied by a draft bill, so that, that would require to be drafted. It will be much more complicated, I suggest, than the bill which is attached to the easements report. There isn't yet a timetable put forward for legislation, although some people think it's likely to be before the next general election, we will see uh, some kind of proposal. But um, by putting forward very ambitious and wide-ranging changes, uh, it may be that that has the effect of, of delaying those changes, whereas had more modest proposals been put forward, I might have seen them get through Parliament more quickly. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. As I said at the beginning, it's a very politicised subject, this. And that's what tends to drive it. And whereas uh, I agree entirely with what Tony said, that the, the Law Commission report on, on covenants and easements, and another very good example is the, is the uh, uh, Law uh, Commission's report on forfeiture. Neither of those are particularly controversial. And you could almost say in a way that that's the reason they haven't gone through, because nobody cares very much. Everybody thinks it's quite a good idea, but there's nobody actually uh, beating down the door of uh, the ministry say you have got to uh, you've got to legislate for this we know very well that trying to get a bill into a legislative timetable in parliament was extremely difficult there's very little time available and therefore unless you do uh, what the lobbyists have done here uh, which is to uh, have an enormous publicity campaign about the evils of leasehold um, and how it's all so terribly unfair that uh, the government wakes up and thinks we must do something about it. So the Law Commission find themselves, I think, very often in a slightly difficult position because, of course, they're, they're, they're apolitical. I mean, they, they don't have a political agenda. Um, they are there to uh, look at uh, reform of the law. Uh, but the government is not, I suspect, terribly interested in looking at reform of the law uh, um, uh, unless they see some political advantage in it. Uh, and that, of course, brings us back to votes and uh, whether or not it's going to be a popular measure. Uh, and this will be a popular measure. That's how the government will see it. So I think you're much more likely uh, to see a draft bill before the next general election 
making enfranchisement cheaper uh, than you are to see uh, a government uh, bill on uh, dealing with the law of positive governance and easements. No votes in that. The Law Commission's done a lot of the hard work on easements and, and covenants and various other areas, you know, by producing the draft bill. Why do you think they decided to take the opposite approach for yeah. the reform? Yeah. What, well, not um, producing a draft bill, you mean? They haven't yeah. put in a draft bill. Uh, well, just I think because of timing. Well, no, I think it's because they've left in their report They've left a number of decisions, policy decisions, to be made by the government. Yeah. And um, I think that's right. And they've said, you know, we can't. First of all, all the valuation matters are, are, as Damien has said, political decisions. And the Law Commission uh, doesn't form a political judgment. So they've they've put forward a menu of options for the government to select from that they couldn't put a bill forward with with those options because that's all they are they are they are options in relation to the non-valuation matters even there there are a number of examples where they've said this is what seems like a good idea but the actual detail of it will have to be worked out as and when a bill is drafted um, and they they haven't put forward the the actual final solution and it may be that they will get involved at the bill drafting stage, I don't know, but um, the the their report, in a sense, is only the first stage. It's not a not like in the easement and government case where it was complete and they put forward a full set of recommendations and a draft bill to implement those recommendations. So that being the case, do you think that's going to push out the timescale for when we can expect reforms to be implemented? Do you think before the next general election is realistic, given the complexity that's going to be involved in drafting that bill? Well, I, it, I think it depends how much continued pressure there is to, to, to legislate on it. Um, I mean, there are pressures to deal with the ground rent scandal which Damien has vividly described, there aren't pressures politically to redefine flats and houses as residential units. So uh, certain things I'm sure will be the subject of legislation, whether, whether a complete rewrite of the law happens before the general election, I, I will just have to wait and see, I don't know. We may know a bit more in, in May when um... Uh, the next Queen's speech, I think, the government may then choose to say something. I think we're all expecting a ground rent bill of some sort to be announced in that for the next session of Parliament. But I believe that is going to be a very limited uh, bill and will deal purely with the government's stated intention to abolish, and that probably is truly abolish, unlike marriage value, uh, to abolish ground rents in future residential leases. So they will not be- But not, ex not, not touch those in existing leases at all. No, I wouldn't touch those in existing leases, nor do anything else, I believe. I mean, we'll have to wait and see when the draft bill is published. Uh, so, so that should be fairly short and sharp. Although even that, I gather, is I've had it suggested that um, it's not that easy when you come to uh, define not only uh, what's a residential lease as opposed to some other sort of lease, nor is it actually particularly easy to define a ground rent. There doesn't seem to be any definition in much other legislation that I've ever been able to find that it's, what, it, what a ground rent has actually ever been legally defined as to what it is. 
Tony, unless you know differently. Well, no, that there's there's the definition of a modern ground rent in the 1967 Act, but that yes. is <laughs> that, that that actually produces a very high rent because it's yeah. full market value for land, which isn't isn't what we're talking about here. So and have you already started to see an impact on the market since the announcement of the forthcoming government reforms, whenever whenever they may be and whatever they may be? Well, I think a market of uncertainty. I mean, one gets quite a few inquiries now from leaseholders. You know, you get the question, should I be making a claim now or not? And a question, if, if I've already made a claim, should I withdraw the claim and wait and see what happens? And they're extremely difficult questions to answer. I think uh, I've described it, you know, the government makes an announcement like this and says, uh, you know, there'll be uh, lots of lovely jam tomorrow. But the difficulty at the moment is we have no idea what the flavour of the jam is going to be, nor indeed uh, when tomorrow is going to come. So it, it, you're trying to make decisions in a vacuum, promises of good things, but not really knowing what those good things are going to be. Uh, you sort of have to consider each one on its on its own merits. It's very difficult to give a sort of general view, yes, you should withdraw your claim now, or yes, you should, you know, you should wait. Uh, in some circumstances, I think people shouldn't wait. I think you need to think very seriously uh, before you withdraw a claim uh, and start again. But there may be individual circumstances where that makes sense. So we see quite a lot of that. More difficult to judge, I think, particularly in the general current property market, is the impact that it these announcements have had on the value of shorter leases. I mean, in theory, if the cost of extending a lease or buying the freehold is going to go down, that should enhance the value of the shorter lease out of which that claim is going to be derived. I'm not sure whether the market has really uh, adjusted to that as yet. And as I say, I think it's probably quite difficult to judge uh, whether there are so many other odd factors influencing the market at the moment. So, I mean, those are the, those are the things that I've noticed. I haven't noticed anything in the market as such, but I think another, another issue is whether the market for reversions for, for ground rents will be yeah. affected. Uh, because we know that in the case of new leases, you won't be able to charge a ground rent, but um, where, where there are existing properties, there, there has traditionally been a healthy market in auctions uh, in particular of uh, reversions where people are selling a ground rent income now if if the uh, yield rates used to calculate the price are fixed by the government at a at a rate which is more favorable to lessees than it is at present one would expect that to harm the market in in ground rent reversions i don't know if there's any evidence yet that that has happened but it wouldn't be surprising. As far as I can see, there's slightly mixed evidence. Uh, I mean, I think there is still a market, whether it's still for the same sort of things or the uh, same sort of assets, and whether it's affected the price and the number of people in it, I think is a rather different question that we shall see. I mean, it's an area, I mean, generally, it's an area of great uncertainty, I think, isn't it, at the moment? Thank you both so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. If listeners would like to listen to any of our other More Than Law podcasts, you can find them on your usual podcast platform. 
you can also check us out on our website forsters.co.uk or you can find us on all the usual social media feeds linkedin facebook instagram and twitter and until next time goodbye Forster's More Than Law podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequence from loss arising from the use of reliance on or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The More Than Law podcast and all copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it should not be used or produced or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forster's LLP's prior written consent.